Welcome to the Practice Brave Podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Battles, a strength and conditioning coach and the founder of Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism. The Practice Brave Podcast brings you the relatable, trustworthy, and transparent health and fitness information you're looking for when it comes to coaching, being coached, and transitioning through the variables of motherhood and womanhood. If you're a pregnant or postpartum athlete or a coach working with this population, this show is specifically designed for you. All right, let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to the Practice Brave podcast. I'm so excited to be here with my friend and colleague, Danelle Dixon, and she is a physical therapist at Performance Plus Physical Therapy in Washington, D.C., and she works with dancers. And you're probably like, Brie, we know you don't dance, which, I mean, if you followed me for any amount of time, you're not surprised by that. But I do work with so many different women and people that have dance backgrounds or have children in dance. And the work that Danelle does is so important for us as coaches, practitioners, athletes, and parents to just have a a grasp on. So Danelle, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you and talk about all things dance. I know. I love it. So tell us just a little bit about yourself, like your personal, professional, whatever you want us to know about what you do and, and why you do it. Okay. My name is Danelle Dixon. If you hear a little bit of an accent, it's originally because I'm originally from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. So depending on how excited or how mad I am, you may hear a little accent slip out. That's where that comes from. (laughs) I have been practicing for 15 years. I'm a physical therapist. My specialty is orthopedics, sports, and performing arts. I work very extensively with dancers um, in the dance population. Then research in dance medicine. I work with pre-professional and professional dancers, mostly in, in the genres in terms of ballet, modern, and jazz. I do occasionally see quite a few African dancers, folk dancers, classical Indian dancers, salsa, merengue, that fun stuff. Occasionally a break dancer too may may break in, you know, the ranks. But mostly the population that I work with is pre-professional and professional um, dancers that are aspiring to get to a professional level. And those guys that are on tour, passing through Washington, D.C. and the suburbs. It's amazing. So tell us. What do you think makes dancers different from other kinds of athletes? So the thing that makes dancers different from other athletes, I think, is a combination of things. It's not just one thing. First of all, dancers have a very unique culture. That culture is very much rooted in the performing arts. You will find that very rarely these days that dancers would call themselves an athlete which is something that I feel very passionately about because I do think it puts them in a box where they're not recognized, um, not only from the public for the difficulty in the sport that they do, but it also marginalizes them in the medical community in terms of how seriously they're taken. I do have quite a bit of theories on what happens also when you have a sport that is majority female, but I think that's a conversation for another day. (laughs) We won't go into that today, but that is one of the reasons. So because of that perception or that thought process of how dancers, and I'll say we in this this instance, because I do have a very extensive dance background, in terms of the way that dancers view themselves, we see ourselves as artists. And in the dance world, it is very endemic that dancers don't talk about injuries and anything to do with pain. It's seen as a sign of weakness. There's a lot of fear about talking about being in pain. And for that reason, with a lot of other driven athletes, dancers typically don't talk about injuries. They don't talk about their pain. 
and they go until they can't go anymore and then they break, which is where, you know, someone like myself comes in to really help these dancers not just break at any point in time, but really have a sustained and lasting career that they can be proud of and they can actually get into their 30s, their 40s dancing and not have significant dysfunction and problems because of an injury that they did not seek help for or were just too scared to tell someone that they were in pain. So that is um, something that's very different about dancers. Another thing that's very unique about dancers is that dancers are required to really exhibit very large ranges of motion in terms of flexibility. They're superbly flexible athletes that are required to do things that most humans don't do. I like to call them my little superhumans because we, we have to be very flexible in a lot of different ways. It really starts predisposing us when you're looking at the injury patterns of dancers to a, a variety of injuries that are very unique to that population that you're not going to see in the regular population because of the requirements of what they have to do. Also with dancers, um, even though they are just as passionate, just as dedicated, just as focused as other athletes, their training is really for the most part um, endemic in the dance world, pretty tunnel vision, what I like to call. And, and this may be a controversial statement. Dancers tend to train the same way all the time. They don't use a lot of cross training. They don't use a lot of the training principles that a lot of the athletic world uses because there's a fear of bulking up in the dance world, because of its aesthetics, they are very interested in maintaining a certain body type. So there's a fear of building a lot of muscle, a lot of bulk, um, because it's not an, an, an aesthetic that it's looked for in the dance world. So for that reason, dancers tend to have very lean bodies, not a lot of muscle mass. And along with that comes along all of the eating disorders and also diagnoses that comes along with disordered eating. But unfortunately, in the past, I would say 15, 20 years, the world of dance has changed dramatically. You know, the things that we now love to see as audiences in terms of looking at dancers has completely changed. So we want to see dancers that um, move faster, that are stronger, that are more athletic, that are more acrobatic, which means we need more muscle. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's quite a bit of um, a discrepancy in terms of the things that dancers are being asked to do along with the aesthetic that has been prevalent in the dance world for decades. Hopefully it's starting to change with a lot of conversation around what healthy eating and what healthy training looks like, changes in what dancer bodies realistically should look like versus, you know, the very thin, lean bodies that have been typically been highlighted as beautiful. And really a, a bigger conversation about, you know, the health of dancers how we're maintaining our health, how we're maintaining our injuries, what are our relationships with food, what are our relationships with pain, and how do we really communicate the needs that we need in the dance world to our audience, to our teachers, our choreographers, to make sure that we have a long and lasting career. Oh my gosh, you have touched on so much good stuff there. (laughs) And You know, I think that there's so many common threads here between, I don't, like I said, I don't typically coach dancers or work with them. I, I, it's more of like people in a different season of life that come to me and their background is the dance culture. But what you described about their mindset and the overall dance culture of the expectations and how it's changed and um, like some of like rigid fears and beliefs is so connected to something that I call athlete brain right? But it's just like this dance brain, which is really just that intrinsic motivation to 
be a certain way, to look a certain way, to uh, pursue and perform. And it's like on that spectrum where it really becomes so attached to one's identity, right? It's not just about what they can do. It is like who they are. Yes, absolutely. I, I tend to tell a lot of the people that I work with that if you can treat a dancer, you can treat anyone. Mm-hmm. And here's why. Dancers, again, because of the, the culture that they're brought up in, are not great communicators. You know what I mean? Like they know what they know, they like what they like, and they can be very specific. But it's very much of a close culture in terms of they're not particularly trusting of people that don't speak their language. Mm-hmm. So you have to know their language really well. And if you are not in the dance community, you have to be an excellent communicator in order to get them on your side. In addition to that, because they're so specific with the injuries that they do have, they tend to be um, very directed and very focused in what they need. So you have to get very specific with the interventions that you need to handle these people or else you're going to lose them. So if someone comes into you and they say, hey, Danelle, you know, I can't, I cannot releve it. Releve is really going up onto the balls of the feet. I can't releve. It's painful. And I have a performance in six days. If you don't have a clear idea of what's going to happen in those six days to get them pain-free, they're gone. Right. Like you, you get one shot and that's about it. It has to be very, very specific. And also, again, because of the culture, as I said before in dance, um, there's not a lot of encouragement for younger pre-professional and adolescent teens to really speak up and talk about the things that they need. So you really find yourself, in my opinion, if you're being a great clinician, being an advocate for these dancers, you know, being able to, you know, step into their world and see things from their perspective and advocating to parents, advocating to teachers about the things that they need so that they can get to their goals and um, with all of the support that is possible for success. So if you can really combine all of those things really well, you're going to be an amazing clinician in my, in my opinion. And it's in my mind, it's very much like any marginalized group of people. You know, you have people that work their butt off. They're very athletic. They don't get paid a lot if they get to the professional level and it's superbly competitive. The dance world is not highly regarded in the medicine world. And for a lot of times, dancers have historically had not fantastic interactions with the medical community. So there's a lot of mistrust there about going to doctors. It's frowned upon, you know, like you can't tell anyone that you're injured, you know, like, oh my God, I can't, I'm in pain, but I'm not going to say anything. So if you can reach that community, you can reach anyone. (laughs) It's funny you say that because I talk about that when people tell me, well, I don't work with athletes. Like, well, if you are really going to be a well-rounded and respected coach or practitioner, you have to understand how to communicate to them. And that's just really like leadership and getting that trust and that buy-in, whether you do that particular form of movement yourself or not, you've got to get in the trenches and be willing to learn with them. And with that athlete brain or that dance, like we call dance brain, as we call it runner brain, you know, like Mm -hmm. you tell a dancer not to dance, they're going to leave you. If you tell a runner not to run, they're going to leave you. If you would tell a CrossFitter that they can't CrossFit anymore, they're going to put their middle finger up and walk away, right? Like we can't, you have to get on the same page as them so that they can trust that you're actually their first line of defense to help them do the thing that they want to do. And that obviously isn't just achieved by saying, we'll do these just a couple different exercises and you'll be all good. It really is understanding their mindset and what their actual performance goal 
And then the other variables that they're up against based on the culture they're coming from. Absolutely. And you have to create your dance team. And the, the person that's ahead of the team is the dancer, not, right. not the coach, not, not the choreographer, not the parent. That's a whole other conversation there. Not the parent. Yeah. It's the dancer. And you have to make sure to bring people on your team that supports your vision and is able to address issues on each and every single side because there's so many things that dancers these days have to sort through to allow success. And you, you need a comprehensive team. You need someone who understands what you're going through. And if you are dismissive of half of the things that are concerned to dancers, you're not going to get the buy-in that's necessary to really form that therapeutic alliance, to form that trust that that dancer knows that you have that, that your best interests at heart and you are going to really bat for them no matter what the problem is that's put on a table. So. I love it. It really is just being like an advocate with them. And that is something that I think is such a missing link. I know that made me feel crazy for so long um, with my own struggles as an athlete was like, I just want to find someone who gets me and then who will also go to bat with me. Right. Like I want that person who's in the arena and willing to help me figure this out. Even if they don't know everything, they're willing to help me find the people, find the team, find the resources and, and figure it out. Right. Cause it's so yeah. lonely to feel like you don't get it, especially when you're in a culture where it's you're shamed for having something wrong with you. Or like, mm-hmm. even if you're not shamed on the outside, you feel it internally. Like it's embarrassing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And, and to anyone, this, this is a little bit of my pet peeve. Anyone that says, Oh, dancers are not athletes. You try folding yourself in half. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh my gosh. No, it is like the most athletic, athletic thing ever. Watching, watching how dancers move their body and how dynamic and explosive it is. And then also like graceful and agile. It's freaking beautiful. I don't yeah. have an ounce of coordination and rhythm and whatever. Like, again, I told you before this call, like unless there's a lot of alcohol involved, but that's uh, probably not super professional. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's, it is such a beautiful sport mm-hmm. and a beautiful, yeah. like beautiful form of movement to participate in. So wow. on a tangent, I mean, that was a tangent, but what mm-hmm. is something that you see, like what are some injuries that you see often, whether it's people that have, that are currently um, dancing or people that maybe have retired, so to speak, from dancing? What are some things that you see in clinic injury-wise? Sure. So when we're talking about the active dance population, overwhelmingly, you're going to see anywhere from 70 to 90% of injuries happens at the foot and ankle, which kind of makes sense when you realize that dancers spend an inordinate amount of times on the balls of their feet or if they're ballet dancers on their toes. So you're talking about all of the tendonitis, you know, the posterior tibialis tendonitis, Achilles tendonitis, perineal tendonitis, ankle sprains, stress fractures in the foot, sesamoiditis, flexahalicus longus tendonitis. All, all of those are very common diagnoses that happens at the foot and ankle. Pending, and this is really mostly for ballet, once you start branching out into other genres, so modern, contemporary stuff, It doesn't dramatically change, but the numbers do shift a bit. So you're going to start getting a bit more of the knee issues. You're going to start getting more of the hip issues. You would find that sometimes for men, spine and shoulder issues, because they're doing more of the lifting and more of the athletic stuff that involves the upper body, but predominantly in the lower extremities where you're going to see the majority of injuries for dancers. 
Interesting. And so do you see that both with active dancers and people that have maybe not danced in 10 years, for example? So interestingly enough, the guys that dance in 10 years don't present as much with those spectrum of injuries. They're going to start getting what I like to call residual dance injuries, meaning that they have a history of being really, really flexible or they may have had an injury that has been unresolved, either neither addressed or never correctly treated, that has now manifested itself down the line into some sort of mechanical dysfunction. Right. So this is where you're going to start getting, you know, the you know continuous knee pain. You know, like I find like I can't do any exercise because when I squat, it hurts. And that was because it was a wonky knee that was never addressed that is now, you know, worn down cartilage on the patella and there's tracking issues. So it's now morphed into another issue down the road as time has gone along. It's not unusual for dancers to have um, issues with their hips, specifically if they're very flexible. And I would say not just the hips. The hips is um, something that comes up quite a bit in terms of what I see, but just about in any joint. If they're very hypermobile, you would find that later down the road, they're going to start suffering from degenerative issues. So labral tears come into play bone spurs, arthritic symptoms, even as crazy as, you know, necrosis can start happening at the hips. Similarly with the spine, you're going to start seeing a lot of degenerative changes happening at the spine. And we're talking 10, 15, 20 years out. It's very common for dancers that have gone through their professional career and are no longer actively dancing to start going into academia in the dance world where they're teaching, or, you know, they may be doing stuff with choreography and stuff like that. And you would notice that for those dancers, you know, they usually have a very interesting story of, you know, well, I had this one injury and I knew that was the end and that's why I'm here now. And those guys are really going to be, in my opinion, the people that are most best positioned to really advise young dancers, and this is a bit of a segue, but to advise young dancers in the best way to take care of their bodies because they've been through the battle. They've been through it already. But those guys, unfortunately, are usually the ones who have not taken care of their bodies over time. So again, with that, with that long time period happening, you start getting degenerative changes. You start getting biomechanical issues and imbalances that presents itself as irregular orthopedic conditions. Man. All right. What do you wish parents knew to help their children that are in dance preserve their body for the long game? And similarly, what can someone who's been a dancer for 20 something years do to manage her body and improve how she feels? Like, what are some of those, what are some steps that people can do and be aware of to be a truly an advocate for their body or their children's body and longevity? I love this question. So I will say, let's, let's start with talking about parents and their kids. Parents, if you are listening the thing that you need to understand is that your child's body needs to last throughout their life, okay? Regardless of the track that your young dancer is on, are they a pre-professional track? Are they doing competitions? Are they trying to get into ABT? Whatever it is, this body has to last throughout their life. So you want to make sure that you maintain it. If you have a car, You go and you change the oil, you wash it. If there's something on the dashboard that comes on, you go and you check it out. It's imperative that dancers start changing their mindset of only thinking of the training of dance and not thinking of the injury prevention of dance. It's going to happen at some point. This is, this is, 
an unfortunate but very realistic aspect of any sport. Chances are you're going to get injured at some point. You do not want to be unprepared. Okay. So I would say for the young dancers that are now getting into their career and really going through their training, make sure that either your teacher or your school or your conservatory has some sort of dance medicine program that is attached to, or they have very strong referrals that they know that they can send their dancers to. You need to have some sort of dance medicine specialist that understands dancers and that has a strong history of understanding and working with dancers to take care of you when you are injured. Because it's not if, and that's and that's a fault of dance training and, and the environment and the and the history of dance. It's not if, but it's when. Chances are you you will get injured at some point. Your job is to make it as minimal as possible and plan for the eventuality that it's going to happen, that you have the right people on your side to take care of it when it happens. That's number one. Number two, the goal is not to get injured. So it becomes so imperative for dancers to cross-train. This is something that I am ridiculously fanatic about, that I preach to my dancers. They're sick of me saying this, but I believe it with all of my heart and all of my soul. The more, the more that you can prepare your body to, with, to withstand the rigors of dance, specifically what professional dance looks like these days, is the longer you're going to have longevity in your career. And the longer past your career, you're going to be able to really benefit from all of the hard work that you're putting in now. The way that that looks like, it's not just doing class. It's not just connecting with the right choreographers. It's not just about the auditions. You have to train your body all the way around to withstand what you're asking it to do. That means you have to cross train. Find a sport, find a program, find something that you love to do, something that you enjoy that takes you a little bit away from dance that's going to augment and really improve your capacity to perform in dance. Okay, one of my biggest ones that I advocate for is swimming love swimming. You really, really stress your cardiovascular system. You are going to fly when you are out of the water, believe it or not. Okay. Sports that involve a lot of running for the younger dancers that are not quite at a professional level. I can't tell you how many stories of dancers that, you know, instead of going off to a training program, they decided I'm just going to do soccer for summer. Mm -hmm. They ran up and down on a soccer field for ages and then they came back to class and their teacher was like, what did you do? <laughs> you know, they cross-trained, you know what I mean? Cardiovascular, you're running, you're working your legs, you're working your core. When you get to your jumps, when you get to your turns, what are you using? The exact same muscle groups, exact same thing. It's about working smarter and not working harder. It's not about overloading your body and, and opening up yourself to the overuse injuries that dancers are so prone to, all of the itis that I just um, recently spoke about. It's about training your body so that it can perform when you're asking it to at each and every single level. Changes in power, changes in endurance, changing in how many times you got to do that fuete, changes in how many times you have to do that that sote. Like that's, that's the way to train. You have to be a lot more strategic and smarter about how you're training. And for anyone that's interested, um, again, I'm so passionate about cross-training. I do have a cross-training program. I'll mention it later. It's called Dance with John Line. Get in there. So that's that. The third thing that I want to talk to about when we're talking about parents is it is imperative because of the culture of dance. It is imperative that you are your child's first advocate. And I feel really strongly about that. With COVID-19 hitting us, 
the dance world and the performing arts world has had to be still. And with that stillness, and I think this applies across the board, came introspection. And there was a lot of conversation in the dance world about, well, what is not good about what's going on? What are we talking about? Let's talk about the culture of dance. Are you, be, are you happy here? Are you having a good experience here? And this transcends everything to the way that teachers are training students, the way teachers are encouraging or discouraging students, um, sexual abuse. It, it, it goes into um, racial disparities. There's so many different layers that the dance world has now started to pry the door open a little bit. And I see it on a micro level in my clinic when people come in and they say, you know, my teacher shamed me because I had an injury and I wanted to sit out. And my teacher shamed me for having an injury in front of a classroom. Parents, you are your child's first advocate, 100 percent. Listen to your kids. Make sure you have open communication with your kids about what training should look like, how they feel about it, how positively they feel about it, how negatively they feel about it. And also make sure that you have a very good understanding of what pain feels like. One of the things that dancers are entirely terrible at is understanding the difference between good pain and bad pain. And this is your first line of defense, the body's first line of defense to understand if you have an injury and how to have early intervention in taking care of that injury. So make sure that you're listening to your kids. Make sure you're not driving your kids into something that they may or may not want to do. Pay attention to the dynamics of the studio. Pay attention to how the teachers treat the students. It's important. These are things that these young adults are picking up that they're going to carry throughout their lives, not only in the dance studio, but throughout their lives in terms of how they relate with their providers, their other relationships. Do they feel that they can be listened to? Do they feel that they can advocate for themselves? Do they feel that if they have an objection, they can say something? It's important. I can't tell you how important it is. As you can tell, I'm very passionate about this. Oh my gosh, I'm like so fired up and like (laughs) you said so many brilliant things here and two words that stuck out to me Mm -hmm. when you were speaking to cross-training, you said it will augment your dance and your performance. And I I feel passionately about that when we talk about like youth sports and that's a whole other thing that I'm now getting to live through my, through my boys as they will grow up in sports. Uh I think as parents, we've seen this culture of specialization at such a young age that we're actually hindering their long-term health and performance and success in that sport. We see that in evidence, yet we see, I know, specialized baseball, gymnastics, dance, swimming, whatever, at a very, very young age where that's then the only sport that they're doing rather than introducing them to a spectrum of movement and sport. And so when we can reframe what we think about like a multi-sport approach or cross-training approach, it's with the, with the intent of augmenting the thing that they actually really want to do or that they really enjoy, or that maybe they prefer over the other things, but we're working to augment that. And that's so powerful for parents to keep in mind, but also for us as maybe a specialized athlete to know that this is only going to complement what we do with our runners. We tell them the same thing. Hey, you need to do this with our yogis. We tell them you also need to strength train. Like there's so much power to being a versatile mover and athlete. And then the other thing that you said that I really loved was being the advocate and learning to do that at a young age, having a parent that advocates for you is so powerful because then it shows you how to advocate for yourself and they're empowered to do that 
like you said, as a child, but also they grow up knowing how to do that. And that pays off so much throughout the course of their lifetime. We really are our own first line of defense, but we also need to have that modeled. I know as parents, we have to model that for our kids. And I just, everything you said there was just, I was like sitting here doing like a happy dance, trying to like write things down because there were so many takeaways and I love it. No, absolutely. And I mean, I really could, I'm I'm trying to be brief, but I, I can really talk about this stuff for days. I did not answer your second question, though. <laughs> Remind me of your second question. <laughs> um, I'm like trying to remember my second question. I I don't even know. Let's see, I I, I I think it had to do with older dancers. That's yeah, that's yeah. Point. And I but I do kind of feel like you answered that because you were talking about like being that advocate. But if you do want to talk about maybe dancers that aren't in their youth, for example, like I'd love to hear what you think that they could do differently from your perspective. Yeah. So in terms of, in terms of injuries, guys, I I think the thing to remember as an older dancer, and and this is um, something that has recently crossed my radar, you know, I'm so much in the pre-professional and the prep professional world. I realize how underserved the older dance population is because yeah, guys, once a dancer, always a dancer. And I am now in that category myself. You know, I used to be a dancer, but you know, I can I can do everything that I used to. I still got a little technique. I still got a little something, something. I can, you know, I can do some stuff, but I'm no longer in that competitive or professional realm anymore. And the older dance population is really underserved. And it's something that's you know, really come to my attention in the past couple of months with COVID and, you know, the the benefit of being still for a while. And there's a lot of, a lot of misinformation and a lot of lack of education that older dancers have. The fact of the matter is the older dance population does not have the benefit that the guys that are 16 and 15 and 12 have today. They don't. In general, dance medicine is still a very relatively new field. So the things that were around five years ago weren't around today. And the concept of treating dancers as athletes and really complementing the knowledge and the understanding of your body and how to take care of your body is still very pervasive, very much so. So for the older dancers... This is your time now that you don't have the pressures of being in the dance world and having to have, you know, the perfect body and having to, you know, look at your diet and all of this fun stuff. And you can just settle into your body and just be yourself and enjoy your body for what it is and what it can do. Take the time to take care of yourself. The first line of defense is getting the education and understanding your body on a different level. Dance at 50 at 40 at 30 looks different from dance at 10 and 12 and 20. That's a fact. Okay. So find yourself into, to really into, into places where you can find information more about your body, learn about your body, learn about going back to basics and doing basic techniques and understanding why things work and why things don't. This is also a great time for you to start really paying attention um, chances are, if you are an dancer, you're not worried about finances as much as, as you used to when you were in the professional setting. Go get go get checked out. You have that wonky head that always clicks every time you go a la second. Go get it checked out. Now you know better, do better. Okay? Go get it checked out. Um, because again, a lot of these things, as I mentioned before, starts really filtering into 
things that start of a degenerative nature later on in life. Okay. If you want to keep dancing and you're passionate about it, now is the time to take care of what's going on. Don't wait till it, it blossoms into four or five different problems when you started off with one. All right. And then the third thing that I would say is really seek a, a community that really supports you. I'm actually on Facebook part of a, a group that talks about all things dance and stuff like that. And they talk about, you know, different, you know, unitards and what does point shoes looks like. And, you know, as you're getting older, you know, will teacher allow you to get on there. And I think it's a great community and great conversation, but what's missing is the medical aspect. And, and it's, it was really shocking for me to see even at this age that people were still siloed in, in the culture of dance where we just don't ever talk about injuries. And let me tell you the advice, Brianna, let me tell you the <laughs> advices people give. Oh, just no, you don't ever put, I, you know, just crazy stuff, crazy okay. stuff. So I think it's really important to find a community, but start really putting yourself in a position to really learn more about your body so that you can better serve your body. You want it there at 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100. You want to dance forever. If you've been a dancer, you know how much you love it. Now give yourself the opportunity to do it for a lifetime. Now is the time to do it. So really find those communities. Um, I'm thinking of starting one myself that's going to give dancers a little bit of a different perspective on how to really take care of your body all the way through your life but find people out there, actively look it out. We are out there. There are professionals that are out there that can help you at any age. Gosh, I love that so much. One thing that I, I say a lot is like athleticism doesn't end when motherhood begins, but whether you're a mother or not, it is really like supporting people across their lifetime of athleticism in whatever interest or form that might be right and and mm-hmm. but to do that we have to be a little bit aware a little bit aware of what our body has been through and what it's going through during these different seasons of life and i absolutely think that you should start a community because you have niched down so dang well as a professional and i i love it i think it's it's brilliant and we certainly need more practitioners and coaches who get it and can speak that language because they understand the culture or are willing to understand that culture. So I think like we're at the end close, or at least close to the end of our questions, but how do you see a lot of this conversation and considerations translate into other maybe dynamic athletes, whether it's youth athletes, maybe gymnasts, or I don't know, just other dance dynamic kind of athletes. How do you see this information transfer? I I think the thing that's really touching all sports right now, including dancers, is really two things. It's more of an awareness, as as you mentioned before, of, you know, the detriments of specialization. You know, we we are, my favorite phrase, instant coffee society. We want things now. Your, Your mom and your dad is pushing you. They want you to be the top of your class and they want you to perform at the front. The teachers are pushing you. And, you know, dancers are there. They want to please, you know, all, all, all athletes, they want to please, they want to succeed. They want to be successful. We are already driven. We want to make sure that that's channeled in the right way. Mm-hmm. And there are healthier ways that we can really implement for our athletes to achieve all of these things in a way that's really going to ensure longevity in their career and protect them long-term. If you look at what the medical um, community is talking about, specifically with youth sports, they're now seeing a prevalence, a new prevalence 
of younger and younger athletes having the injuries and the surgeries of established athletes that are out 10, 15 years in their career. I started seeing that in my clinic about five to six years ago and wondering like, what is going on? And initially I thought I was just like, man, you must have had a bad teacher, but it is becoming more prevalent because we are pushing these young kids way too hard, way too early. It's damaging the way that they're growing. It's damaging their muscles in a way that advanced, you know, seasoned athletes have. And you're really stunting their careers because you're not allowing them to grow and mature and evolve with the sports in the right timing by rushing things. So I really strongly believe that it's imperative that all youth athletes at this point in time really start paying attention to what does success really look like? You know, like what, what are you trading if you are, if you are on a fast track? For example, my, my niece is eight years old. She lives in Australia. And over the weekend, she has a cast on. She does gymnastics. She has a cast on her wrist because there was something that happened with the straps and she got strapped in and injured her wrist. She's nine. Yep. She's mm-hmm. nine in a brace about to get an MRI. Nine. Yeah. Okay. Growth plates haven't closed. Puberty hasn't hit. None of that. She's already being exposed to all of this stuff. Okay, guys, parents, you have to really start asking yourself, what are you, what does success look like for your child? And you have to involve your child in that conversation. I really strongly believe that they're the one doing the work. It's their bodies that are on the line. So I really believe that is one thing that I think that we need to speak about on a wider um, sports level for youth athletes. Another thing that I think we need to start talking about is, again, the the cultures that are endemic in the sports world. And I think this comes, this ties in perfectly with the training that that athletes endure, where there needs to be more of a conversation and a collaboration where the athletes are put in the middle. And a lot of times we are talking to athletes and not with them. Okay. Meaning that, you know, we say, well, Sarah has to do this. Okay, so we're going to enroll Sarah for five more classes, and then she could come in on the weekends and blah, 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 blah. No one says, Sarah, what do you think? No one says that. And what's happening is that, you know, the sports now and, and the things that um, these kids are doing becomes way more about the adults than it does about the people that are actually doing the hard work, the kids. Okay, so I think that it's really important. And, you know, the way that that manifests in dance is more so on the injury side, but it also bleeds into everything else. When things are going wrong, there's not an empowerment for dancers to speak up. I believe it's the same thing in other youth athletes and youth athlete sports. You know, when when you have a teacher that's a bully, you know, you're not empowered to speak up because it's always been told to you and there's been discussion with you about what needs to happen. And I think we need to start really changing that culture and empowering young athletes to be more vocal, to have a space at the table. Um, and a place at the table to make decisions about their bodies and their lives. Because I think as much as they want to succeed, we need to be there. We need to be malleable enough to allow them to guide us to the path that they want and the outcome they want on their terms. Because they, I mean, in all fairness, it's their bodies. They are doing the work. We are not doing the work. So I really believe that it's something that needs to be addressed across the board. This was so so great to learn about (laughs) and to hear and to just like shine some light on so many considerations that, you know, don't just influence dancers, but you're saying like our sport culture as a whole, our youth 
sports and fitness and dance culture as a whole, and then how that translates across a lifetime. And, you know, there's so many, I think you're doing such an incredible job. I'm so grateful for you. And I, I want you to tell us where we can get more information, both as coaches and practitioners, but also uh, parents or, you know, people looking to learn more. So what do you, what do you have to offer us, my friend? Oh, I, I have so <laughs> many crazy things. So um, first and foremost, I have my Dance Bridge online program. It's a unique cross-training program. It's executed online, so it's available to anyone, any part of the world. You can opt in and join that community. It's a six-week intensive cross-training program that I have designed specifically for dancers. I did it my damn self, so it's pretty awesome if I do say so myself. So make sure that you go to my website. You can connect with me on IG or on Facebook. The link in my bio will take you to that. My IG is at the number three PTDC, Performance Plus Physical Therapy. You can look me up and you can connect with me there. Also on my website, I have quite a couple of um, tools that I offer dancers. I have quick questionnaires that you guys can um, figure out if you do have an injury and you're not sure. Do I need help now? Do I need to just chill for a little bit? Or do I need to go to the ER? Hopefully you, you know what you need to do to go to the ER. But ever so often, somebody's a little bit muddled and does not know what to do. I have very quick questionnaires that you can take online that tells you exactly what's the next best step to do. So you can also access that on my website. I also have a series called Anatomy of a Tondu series. You get six videos delivered to your inbox in a couple of days, over a couple of days, that takes you step-by-step step of the things that you need to do in order to perfect your amazing Tondu. And I do plan to do um, other video series with that. In terms of working with me directly, I'm always available for physical therapy in my clinic in Washington, DC. And also I do virtual sessions also. Oh my gosh, so <laughs> much good stuff. And we will link her information and website, Instagram in the show notes. So um, that'll help direct you to all of the resources. But you are you are a gem and I love what you bring to this world for both practitioners, coaches, dancers, and athletes alike. I thank you so much for sharing this with us today. Mm -hmm. And uh, guys, definitely look at her, look at her stuff. Thank you for being here, Janelle. Thank you so much, Brianna. This was so fun. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you are a coach and anything about this resonated with you, I want to encourage you to check out becoming a pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coach. It's an online certification for coaches and trainers, whether you've been coaching for years and years, or you're thinking about a whole different career pivot or just a hobby where you want to be a trustworthy person in your community, at your gym, online, who can help guide athletes through pregnancy and postpartum. And you might be thinking, okay, well maybe, but I don't really coach athletes. So remember an athlete, is a person pursuing fitness across a spectrum of interest and ability, right? So if we can coach a really high level athlete, we can also be able to coach the really like average mom who just wants to be able to take care of her kids and do so without symptoms and pain and discomfort. So we really have to be able to coach a spectrum of women through these chapters. And I want to encourage you to consider becoming that coach. Maybe it's the coach that you wish you would have had or it's the coach that you know is absolutely necessary in your community, in your gym, and you can see the value of this message and information. So if you want to learn more about that, check out the link in the show notes.